Oh, let's get it. Monday, November 8th, 2021. Born the Battle. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to Born the Battle, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the player inside the blog on blogs.va.gov. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. It is it is finally here. This is not a Veterans Day episode because you know what comes before that. That's right. Happy birthday, Marines! Happy birthday! As you know, this is Veterans Day or Veterans Week to all the other services, but you have a Marine host. And this is the Marine Corps birthday episode. And the Marine Corps birthday will always come first on the calendar and in my heart. You just have to get used to it every time around this year. In addition, this will be my last live podcast for about three weeks as I'm I'm going on vacation, baby. Among other things, I'm going home to Washington State, which means three weeks of Born the Battle Rewinds. And if you haven't heard the extensive library of podcasts, or even if you have, we've got some good ones to reappear in the coming weeks with the ones that we're revisiting. Then it's our last podcast of the year on December 6th. Then we're going on hiatus for the rest of the year. And then we'll have some some best of episodes for the first part of the new year. And then we'll come back and roll on. You know, it's that time of the year for us here at Born the Battle to wind down, retool, see what different stuff we can do as we head into the new year. So stay subbed, stay tuned, and we'll be up and running before long. Just me and my incredible interns are taking a bit of a breather as we head into the holiday season. One new rating and review this week, one that I'm you know, personally appreciative of. This one is from Paul Yonitis, and I think I said that right, who I believe is a psychologist as he has the Psy D after his name. Says five stars, great host and great resource. See why I'm personally appreciative of this uh, of this one. Tanner Isker is one of the best podcast hosts today. He does a great job, is a valuable resource to vets, and knows how to do an interview. He clearly continues to serve. Hey, appreciate it, Doc, but I don't think personally I'm a great resource. With the benefits breakdowns, you know, I'm just a veteran poking around the VA and recording what I find for everyone. If anything, this podcast is the resource, not me. I think it's going to continue on long after I move on. But thank you for writing in and thank you for the kind words. If you haven't yet, please consider writing a review for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts like the good doctor did. Doing so does help us climb higher in the algorithms, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover Born the Battle, listen to the testimonies of their fellow veterans and how they overcame their own challenges listen to our benefits breakdown episodes, and also hear what's in our news releases. It's also the best way that I can communicate with you. You can leave a review, give me some feedback. I'll give you a response. It's a, it's a good thing. No new news releases. I'm sure there'll be some during my vacation and hiatus. As always, to check them out yourself, go to va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L. That's press rel. That's 
va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel. All right. You know, it's the Marine Corps birthday episode. So of course we're going to have a Marine veteran as a guest. He is the season one winner of CBS's Tough As Now reality show competition. And he is also the director of the Military and Veterans Center at the University of Central Missouri. More recently, he's also a newly acquired model for Area International. He is Marine veteran Kelly Murphy, otherwise known as Murph. Enjoy. First of all, I know it's been a while since the, the conclusion of the show, but congrats on winning the Toughest Nails competition. When did that show end? Uh, conclude it. Um, the season finale, I think, was October second of last year. Okay, okay. Um, what did you? What did you? As a winner, what did you receive for the show? Um, well, in team, because you win also team prizes. So in in the team comp, I won eight thousand um, dollars. For winning the whole thing on the individual was two hundred thousand, and then a twenty twenty Ford F two fifty. There you go. There you go. So, yeah, nice. the truck is all uh, the the truck was pretty cool. Um, right after the season finale, then Ford Motor Company called me, and I think her name was Ann. She's like, "Hey, uh, Murph, this is Ann from from Detroit. I'd like to talk to you about your your truck." Like, this is a pretty cool phone call. So I worked with the local dealer. I got to, I drove away a Ford um, F-250 on the show that was like a dark red, but in color, that was like for show purposes. And I got to work with Ford. I got to pick the color, um, the the model I wanted. It just had to be an F-250. I partnered with the local Ford dealer and a, a company up. Um, north of Kansas, well, around the Kansas City area, that's a motorsport company. And we uh, customized the truck. We lifted it. Um, it's a dream truck come true. Like it's, I never got to, my last truck, it took 14 years to get it the way I wanted it. This one, when it showed up at the dealer, we did a big unveiling. It showed up 100% like what I wanted. It was amazing. That is outstanding. I uh, I can only imagine that you're, you're, like when someone's like, Hey, when you're getting rid of your truck, you're probably like when it falls apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one will, uh, will keep for a long time, especially with the, with the way the cars are now, you know, they're having a hard time getting you know inventory to the dealers. So the truck is actually worth more now a year later than when I initially got it, which is crazy. Yeah. I, you know, Toyotas have always been like that. Like my Tacoma has always been like that, but yeah, I think you're right with the with the way things are going. It seems like a lot of vehicles are going that you know it's more value to keep the keep the vehicle, which is really cool to see. Um, so I, I saw an interview on YouTube uh, that you did, and you mentioned in the first episode that your daughter was getting to, ready to start her military journey. How's that going? Uh, and where does she end up being stationed? Yep. So that's my daughter Shelby. She's my middle middle child. Um, she came home from school one day and said, I want to talk to you about the Navy. I said, okay, great. Let's, let's talk. So she was interested in the officer programs and she was going to go to Mizzou university of Missouri here in about an hour and a half away from our house, do the ROTC program, the whole nine yards. So she got the ball rolling, did everything she had to do, got accepted to the university. And then one day, several weeks later, she came home and said, no, I think I want to get my life started now. 
uh, I want to go enlisted and, and leave right after high school. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> all right. So I understand that because that's what I did uh, from the Marine Corps side. Yeah. Um, but anyway, she, so she was there obviously for the last, the season finale of the show. She got to see that. And then right before the second episode of the show, she shipped off to boot camp. So she shipped to boot camp July last year when she was still 17. She turned 18 in boot camp. Uh, boot camp was extended for them because they had the quarantine two weeks before they started training. Then they had to quarantine two weeks in the middle of training. So her boot camp experience turned into be about 12 weeks instead of the standard um, eight, I believe, that how long the Navy boot camp is. It was almost like Marine Corps boot camp. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Yeah, in the length it was, she said, I should have joined the Marine Corps. Yeah, you probably should have now since you were there just as long. She excelled. She did really well. Um, She was a a drum major for three years in high school. So she she was used to taking charge, used to marching, um, you know, used to a, a formal way of doing things. She was also an athlete in high school. So the PT for her was relatively easy. So she did really well at her school in Illinois. She actually just got transferred to San Diego where she's going to her third school. Um, she's going to work on the Tomahawk cruise missile system. And then once she's done with that school, then she gets assigned to the USS Chosen, which is a missile cruiser. Ah, Chosen, Chosen Reservoir. Yes, exactly. So I thought it was pretty cool that my daughter who joined the Navy is going to be on a ship named after Marine Battle. That's awesome to hear. Well, before we dive further into, into reality television, uh, on Born the Battle, we always go back uh, to the thing that, that connects all veterans together. And that's that's the time that you know that military service is going to be the next step in your life. Uh, you had 22 years of service. Where did it start for you? When did you know that the military was going to be the next step in your life? Well, it's funny because I, in high school, I didn't, I knew right off the bat that college was it going to be for me? I, I was a decent student. You know, I didn't excel, but, I, you know, I figured I was a B, maybe a C student occasionally. I spent a lot of time in the in the trades. You know, I was in like a vocational auto shop, wood shop, metal shop. There was a shop class. I tried to take it, but I also did, you know, I also took calculus and stuff like that in school too. So I didn't mind the academic side, but I just knew that it wasn't for me. So I checked out a bunch of trade schools. Um, like automotive schools and things of that nature. And then I'm in English class one day right before lunch. And one of my friends turned around to me and said, Hey, what are you doing after school today? And I said, I'm nothing. He said, why don't you go talk to the Marine Corps recruiter? And I thought, man, Vernon really is cares about me looking out for me. Well, <laughs> Vernon was just trying to get people to join so he can get that promotion out of boot camp, you know, with referrals. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't think about that then, but Anyway, but Vernon took me to the recruiter. We went and, you know, that he put me in that little room and I took that little pre-ASFAB test and then I took it and he, you know, he looked at the score and said, okay, let's, let's talk about the Marine Corps. And I think, I think I knew the military was something I was going to do. You know, I grew up in the yard, you know, playing army, so to speak. And you knew all the stuff that, you, you know, young boys do, um, you know, buying camouflage, hiding out, you know, just having fun growing up. So I always had an interest in the military, but I left the Marine Corps recruiting office going, yeah, this is what I want to do. So I went home, talked to my parents, 
Um, I don't think they were really surprised. I think my mom knew that the military was coming. My dad is an army veteran from Vietnam era. So he wasn't against it. Um, so they went and talked to their recruiter that Wednesday. And then Thursday after school, they picked me up um, at the flagpole. I remember walking out of the high school doors and there's a Marine, two Marines. One was a recruiter's assistant. They were both in dress blues. And I strutted out of the high school going, man, that, that's my ride. I see, I'm going with those guys right there. You know, it was a very proud moment for me because I'm like, I'm about to be part of what they are. Yeah. So they took me up to that MEPS that Thursday. Yeah. You know, I did took the ASFAB the next morning. You do the whole process. And then I enlisted actually for six years. Oh, wow. So you, you did six years right off the bat. Yeah, it was a five-year contract because of the length of the schools. But they threw out the, hey, if you uh, if you go an extra year, you can become a private first class out of boot camp. Sign me up for that, too. So I was an easy sell, so to speak, what the recruiters call it. But yeah, my first enlistment was six years. That's awesome. So uh, what MOS did you start in? Because I saw a good cookie, saw that you were sergeant major in your toughest nails feature. Uh, but I also saw you in a full flight suit, uh, helmet and everything. So w- w- where did you start in your career at? So I actually, when I first was in the Marine Corps, I was an avionics technician on Hueys and Cobras. Okay. So I, um, so, you know, avionics includes, you know, anything in the cockpit, radios, navigation, communication, then you're talking all the sensors and equipment that send information to the cockpit. So it's various engine components, you know, like your alternator on your, on your engine, different things that um, control the engine electronically. So you work avionics entails a lot of different things. Some of the weapon systems as well. You work with ordnance and work on the weapon systems as an avionics technician. So pretty much anything that involves a wire, electricity, signals being sent back and forth, that's what an avionics technician does. Gotcha. Very good. Um, also noticed on the website, on the, on the Toughest Nails website, that you're pr- you said you labeled your proudest accomplishment was coming home with everyone on your last deployment. Where was your last deployment and, and what was it? Where was it? When was it? And what was the last, what was the mission of it? So after, you know, like I said, I was aviation at first and then, but I wanted to be um, a sergeant major. And I knew that the route obviously was to go to the first sergeant side. So when I got promoted to first sergeant, I went to second battalion, fifth Marines and did two deployments with them. Mm. So my first deployment, um, with them was, you know, peacekeeping mission in the Middle East. And we ended up bringing back all, all the Marines. So it, it was a good, economy. I mean, anytime you can bring back all your guys, I mean, that's a su- successful deployment. So yeah, I think that was just because, you know, what happens overseas, you know, just a basic deployment in itself is dangerous, you know, deploying on a ship or offloading or doing operations somewhere overseas. But to bring everybody back was was a very good accomplishment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, how many total deployments? You said two, two, five. Uh, were, how many more times did you go? I did a several when I was younger in the Marine Corps. When I was um, with the aviation side, and then my last two were with with Second Battalion, Fifth Marines. And then when I got back from my second deployment from two five, that's the Marine Corps said, "Okay, you need to go somewhere non deployable." And they said, hey, Fort Leonard Wood is where you need to go. I'm like, okay, where's Fort Leonard Wood? And they're like, well, it's in the middle of Missouri. And uh, 
they were they weren't kidding because the, the nickname for Fort Lagerwood is called Fort Lost in the Woods because <laughs> it is literally halfway between um, uh, St. Louis and another city on the other side, about an hour and a half. But it's a huge training base for the Army. Um, the Marine Corps has four schools down there, and you know, motor transport is the second largest occupational specialty in the Marine Corps. And the motor transport school is down there. Um, the MP school is down there, military police. What we know is nuclear biological chemical NBC, but now it's called Seaburn. Yeah. Um, is down there. And then the engineer guys, the heavy equipment operators are down there. So I went there for about a year. And then that's when I decided to, to retire. I was in the promotion zone for Sergeant Major. And I knew that if I got selected and promoted, that I would be off deploying again. And I just remember being gone for that, that, that time in two five that I knew that if I signed up, I was going to miss a lot of my kids lives. And at the time, my oldest daughter was around, I think she was 10. So mm. I decided to, to retire. So it was a tough decision. You know, I, I achieved the rank of first sergeant. I was in the promotion zone for Sergeant major. Um, you know, so my dream was to be a sergeant major and retire at 30. But I also knew that the sacrifice would be on my kids. And I heard enough people say um, at retirement ceremonies, I want to thank my spouse for raising our kids. Mm. You know, and I didn't I didn't really want I didn't want to do that because I wanted to be there to watch the achievements, to watch the different things that they do. And I'm glad I did. You know, there were times that adjusting to civilian life was really hard. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that here before too long. Oh, 100%. But yeah, I'm glad I made the choice. Um, before we talk about you getting out, while you were in, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. Uh, I would say that his name was, his name is Jared Thompson. Um, he's currently with the Burley Sheriff's Department up in Idaho. And so when I was going to school in, in Millington, Tennessee, which is all now closed, it's all down in Pensacola. I was a Lance Corporal down there going to school. And this, you know, at the time, and I'm sure it's still the same, when you're a private PFC or Lance Corporal, the Corporal is like almost like a God figure. Yeah. When you see a Corporal, you're like, oh my God, that's an NCO. And um, so, Corporal Thompson at the time was a lat mover. He was with the infantry. And at the time in the early nineties, they, you know, the allocations for enlistment for the infantry were, were dwindling. So he wanted to stay in the Marine Corps and his, his options, one of his options was aviation. So he chose the MOS I was in. So he was a lat mover coming over to school and he took me under his wing. He taught me what it meant to be an NCO, you know, because, uh, the air wing and the grunt side, the ground side are just different. You know, the ground side really focuses on the leadership where, you know, when you're talking avionics, the focus is fixing the airplanes. It doesn't mean the leadership's not there. It's just a different style. Yeah. But he taught me about leadership is leadership no matter where you're at. And he really mentored me, um, kept me out of trouble, like guided me in the right direction. Um, you know, told me what MCIs I should take out. And he just made sure that I was a well-rounded Marine. Very good. Very good. Um, 
you mentioned the driver that, that, that was family. I think that's a lot of driver for a lot of folks that, that get out and hats off to you. Cause I think, I think everybody knows when it's, when it's their time. Um, so you got out in 2012. Now I just got out three years after that. Uh, but that, you know, if you look at that, that's almost a whole enlistment. What was getting out in 2012 like for you? Um, you made your way to Lowe's. Was there any initial struggles with employment or just the transition of it all? And how, if you did, uh, how did you mitigate it? I wasn't sure. I wanted to do something with training. And so I, you know, I applied to probably like 60 different companies. Um, I did apply um, to country, to companies all over the Midwest because I knew Missouri was really nice. I wanted to try to stay in Missouri, but I, I tried for several places in the Midwest and I did some interviews. Um, some of them didn't work out. Um, some were just in areas that, man, I don't really know that's where I want to go. And then I was struggling to find something. And then one of the retired sergeant majors that was down in the Fort Leonard Wood area was an HR manager for Lowe's Home Improvement. Mm. <laughs> so I went to a career fair and he's standing there and he knows He's like, one, why are you retiring? So he gave me grief. And then I told him why. And he's like, okay, I understand that. But he said, why don't you try Lowe's, dummy? I'm like, what am I going to do at Lowe's? And he's like, human resources manager. I'm like, I have no experience in HR. And he's like, so he broke it down for me. You were a first sergeant. Of course you do. Yeah. Yeah, Then he broke that down to me. You know, he said, hey, you, you know, you do. The only thing. You have the leadership, the experience. You talk to people. He said, all you have to do is learn all the technical stuff. Learn how the workman's compensation stuff works. Learn how disability stuff works. Work, learn how time off works in different circumstances. He said, that all, that's all in manuals. And you can learn that. He said, but the people skills and the fundamentals of being an HR, any Marine leader has that potential. So I'm like, okay, I applied. And sure enough, um, the area HR called me a few days later, set up an interview. And that's how I got up to where I'm at now here in, here in Missouri. So when I transitioned up here, it was, I still miss the Marine Corps like very much. Um, it, I miss it so much that I didn't become part of the VFW, the American Legion. They have a small Marine Corps league up here. I would not be a part of any organization. I focused on my physical training because I, I do functional fitness stuff. So that was my outlet was my physical. Um, and that really helped my transition because out of everything that was that I had in the Marine Corps, that was the only thing that was consistent. So, you know, because you PT a ton in the Marine Corps. So I kept the PT going and that's what helped me mentally stay engaged. But I was afraid that if I went to the VFW or Marine Corps League meetings, that I would miss the Marine Corps way more than I ever did. Um, so I just separated myself from everything military. Like when I look back on it, so when I talk to veterans now that are separating, I tell them, go find your tribe to hang out with. Go find your fellow veterans because it'll help you. I totally separated myself. Even I, I had reunions that I, that I missed with friends from the Marine Corps. I wouldn't go to those. We said, I wouldn't be a part of anything. I wouldn't go to Veterans Day functions because I was afraid that if I did those things, that it would make me miss the Marine Corps way more than 
than what I already did. And like I said, now I talk to veterans. I'm like, that's probably not, that wasn't the right thing to do. I mean, I broke down about four years ago and it was just overwhelming. So I went and saw a counselor because I didn't think I could handle like the transition anymore. So it just gave me somebody to talk to, you know, somebody that was impartial that didn't know me from anywhere, but it just gave me somebody to vent to. So, and I think if I would have had the, the tribe, you know, those veterans to hang out with, no matter what branch they are, um, I could have probably leaned on them a little bit more instead of just trying to take it all on myself. Yeah, it's, it's almost like in a way you were trying to, and I get that, trying to separate yourself, to rip that bandaid off, to make it fade, to make it part of like the past, but not having that support in that moment of the transition where you needed it made you realize that, and let me know if I'm wrong, made you realize that how necessary that tribe is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You said it really, really well. So, cause that support network, you know, could have been there to maybe say, Hey, what you're feeling is okay. That's normal. You know, yeah. we all felt that or we still feel it, but this is what we do to mitigate it. You know, I, I tried to solve it all myself internally. So I was spending hours at the gym, you know, whenever I wasn't at work, I was working out. Um, I guess in my mind, I thought, you know, if I can stay physically fit, no matter what my hair or beard looks like, that can be cut off. If the Marine Corps needs me, I can still go back. Mm. So, I mean, I still train now. I mean, because I, I, I would have been in the Marine Corps 30 years last year. So I'm well past my my time of service. Um but I just train now because I enjoy it. You know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm, I'm still driven, but now it's like I got my official retirement certificate like last last month that says, no, you're officially retired from the Marine Corps. Here's your your transfer to the Fleet Marine Corps Reserve certificate. So, um, but the transition was way harder than I thought it would be, and I think it would have been easier if if I would have relied on you know my fellow veterans. Got you. Got you. What, um, what do you think was the most difficult aspect of the transition? Like, what do you think was the one, the, the thing that was like, that was tough. That's what, that's what made me realize that I needed my tribe again. I think a lot of it was, so when I was in the Marine Corps, you know, I got my education, I got my, my master's degree, um, why I was deployed. And I felt like the job Finding a job wasn't the hard part. I mean, it was difficult. Don't get me wrong. I spent hours applying, hours working on resumes, you know, hours like doing interviews or going to interviews. Um, but I think the one of the hardest parts was learning the difference between work ethic between the military side and the civilian side. Um, so when I was the HR manager, um, they're like, hey, this person called in sick today. I'm like, called again? Like, what are we going to do? They're like, well, nothing because they have this many sick days. Or, you know, hey, this is this this person has an issue being late to work or this person has an issue doing that. And then what I learned was that a lot of managers are not leaders. Mm. They 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 manage a process or try to manage their people, but they don't have the basic leadership skills. So I think that was a, a rough adjustment for me. Cause when I went to, um, when I went to Lowe's, I, they were good managers. Some of them were great leaders, but some of them were not. Some of them knew how to manage the process and 
you know, manage a schedule, but they didn't know how to lead their people. So that was an eye opener to me because I'm like, you have people in a managerial position that are not leaders. And, you know, the military is not set up like that. So especially the Marine Corps. So that was a big adjustment in, in learning to know that, hey, the, that standard for that company is their standard. They don't have to make, meet Kelly Murphy's standard. That person just has to meet the company standard. So I had to learn, you know, it's not my standard, it's the company standard. But in the military, you know, everybody follows whatever branch of the military there, and that's their standard. So learning that adjustment, you know, learning that not everybody is um, disciplined as in the civilian life as what we are in the military, even though we joke about, you know, our people that aren't so stellar in whatever branch, they, you know, it's a lot different than dealing with it on the civilian side. Yeah. Having to come to terms with it. It's uh, it is definitely a, a big adjustment. Um, like a hundred percent. Uh, so you found, you then found your way to the, to where you're at now at the university of central, central Missouri, right? Um, how did you get there and, and what do you do there? A couple years ago, um, Lowe's and I can't hold it against them. You know, everybody restructures and they do different things. So Lowe's a few years ago uh, decided to eliminate their HR managers from the store level. They went to like a corporate model. So that put me on the hunt for a job. So at this institution, along with many others, you have what's called a military and veterans career center or office or whatever the particular name is. But whenever a service member or a veteran or a veteran's family member using um, benefits goes to school, you have an office that processes those benefits. You know, that way their tuition's paid or their book stipend, um, BH, you know, depending upon what GI Bill they're on. Mm-hmm. So I was the director of the military veteran office here. I interviewed and was hired for that position. And because of the success of the show, um, I'm now in a new position at the university. I do community outreach and recruitment. So now I talk to veteran alumni about connecting back with the institution, you know, um, assisting, helping, mentoring, you know, service members and ROTC students here. And then I just, go out and recruit, uh, for the, for the university. Very cool. Very cool. Um, how are veterans giving back to their institutions like that? Uh, what, what, what are you, what are you looking to get from, from alumni students, uh, or what should universities look to, to get from alumni students that were veterans? Well, I think a lot of our, our veterans now still want to serve in, 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 uh, in a capacity. So what I mean by that, we have a, a couple years ago, we have a we have a student veteran organization here, and the student veteran organization president on Veterans Day, um, he worked with the with the president of the university, and we did a ruck march. So we met at the flagpole, and we loaded our our rucks up with canned goods, and we did a ruck through town, and then we ended up at the end of the the ruck march was at the um the campus cupboard. It's like a, yeah. a you know place where students can go get food. So we dumped off hundreds of pounds of canned goods at the end of the ruck march of the campus cupboard, uh, campus cupboard. So they, they did all that on their own. This, the veterans said, the veteran students said, you know, we want to give back. Um, and this is how we want to do it. So they took their day veterans day to, to do this, this event. And that's the way a lot of veterans are. 
especially around this university, they want to give back. They want to serve their communities. They want to be um, parts of leadership committees. They want to be involved. They want to help out the community. Um, and I think the the alumni want to do the same. You know, the alumni want to help um, mentor our young students, whether or not that's through, you know, providing funding or their time. So that's what I do now is I just talk to those alumni and just say, this is this is who I am. And are you interested in reconnecting and, you know, supporting, you know, the next generation of of alumni from UCM? That's really cool. Uh, it sounds like you're also, in addition to that, it's like getting the veteran alumni together with the university to do something good for either the university or for the community. That's, that's really cool. Um, at the time we, we were recording this, uh, school was starting to get into full swing. Um, in that previous role, you were, you were helping people fill out their GI Bill paperwork and the things like that, which, you know, from a VA perspective is really important. Uh, what's the biggest challenge you're seeing students facing when they enter college? And how are you seeing them adapt and overcome to those challenges? Well, I'll use Kenny. Um, Kenny was our uh, student veteran organization president a few years ago. Uh, he graduated. He's, he's moved on. He moved to New Mexico to work with the Forest Service. But and this is before I got here. So he was a student. He started a few years before I started here. And so Kenny, there was no student veteran organization when he started school. Oh, wow. He would go to school and he sat, he sat in his truck between classes because he felt like he had nobody to connect with. You know, he felt kind of alone by himself. You know, obviously, most of the students are traditional students. So he's a non-traditional student. You know, he served um, in combat time in Iraq. So his, you know, you have a 22 to 24 year old man who's a lot different than your normal 22 to 24 year old student. Yeah. So you've just yeah. felt out of place. So what he did was started the student veteran organization. So he got a group of veterans together and they started hanging out in the veteran center and they started doing stuff like this, these projects, service learning projects. So veterans could do stuff together and also support the community. So I think one of the hardest things that a veteran student has is finding their tribe, so to speak, you know, finding that group of veterans that they can hang out with and they can relate with. Um, sometimes, and the faculty here is really great. Um, I have nothing but praise for the faculty. Um, they understand a non-traditional student, you know, not only, you know, you have working parents that are non-traditional students, so they do a great job. But I think sometimes dealing with faculty is a little bit different because that faculty member is used to dealing with, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old students out of high school. So treating that non-traditional student, that veteran student is a little bit different. They're a lot more responsible than your average student and they've seen a lot of things. So I think faculty getting that veteran involved, you know, if you're talking about something in history, maybe that veteran's been there and seen that part of history. So get yeah. them involved in the class, you know, yeah. that veteran student could be a great yeah. mentor to some of those kids that are in that, that class. So I think, the veteran just finding their place in the university. I think that's, that's one of the biggest struggles, but once they find their place, man, they excel like crazy. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I, uh, I remember, uh, I, I was going through university of Arizona. No, excuse me. Uh, I was going through Arizona state when I first got out and, uh, I was still, I was still working full time at NASCAR at the time. And 
it's funny. I would get these phone calls from the university, you know, Hey, this is so-and-so counselor. Are you doing okay? Are you, are you, and I, I just remember going like, yeah, I'm a 30 year old man. I, I got it. I appreciate you. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate you. Um, but I'm not your traditional student. And so I, I, I can totally understand when you're like, Hey, there, there might be a disconnect sometimes between the faculty and the, it was, I was very appreciative of, of it. And I can understand where some younger kids might've gotten some value from that. And I was, I was more on the phone with, well, how are you doing? How are, you know, <laughs> with the counselor? Cause she was a, she was younger than me and, you know, and it, it was, it was funny. Um, and you said in another interview that everyone in your family is blue collar. You're the first one to get a collegiate degree. Um, what was it in? And it sounds like you finished it while you were in the military. Uh, have you used any of your GI bill or do you plan to use in your GI bill? So I realized during recruiting duty, you know, for three years, I told young men and young ladies all about these great educational benefits that the military had. And it dawned on me like, you you know what, you've never used a single one of them. <laughs> so within six months of getting off recruiting duty, you know, after getting settled back into my unit, I started classes. I went to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I took classes at night. Um, and then, you know, within a few years, I got my my bachelor's degree. And then I decided, you know what, since I'm this far and I'm in the habit of going to school, I ended up um, starting my master's classes. And on my first deployment as a company first sergeant, I finished my last paper, um, sent it off. I was aboard the USS Dubuque when I sent that last email. And uh, I got an email back several days later. Um, my graduate capstone project was approved. And congratulations, you will, you will now graduate on this certain date. I'm like, that's pretty, that felt pretty awesome. So yeah. um, that's how yeah. my educational journey started was because I realized that we do have all these great benefits. Um, so I did use tuition assistance when I was in, I tapped into my GI bill, uh, why I was taking classes because, you know, my, the tuition assistance only goes so far and I was trying to max out my class load. So I used what was called, I don't know if they still have it now, but it's called top up where it allowed me to use my GI bill while I was on active duty. So it allowed me to pay for the classes that wasn't covered by tuition assistance. Gotcha. Very good. Uh, I didn't personally, I started out, I started and we, you know, like in my military, while I was still in the military, I, start, I started my same thing. It did, did the, uh, tuition assistance, but at the time it was like a hundred percent. So you didn't have to tap into GI bill. I think, I think that's changed. I don't think it's a hundred percent anymore. Do you have any of your GI bill left? Are you looking to use it in the future? I do have some left. I, I've thought about starting my doctorate, but to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. Like when I grow up. So <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't know really what I want to do. So I've, I've looked at, at, at getting my doctorate, but I just, I just don't know yet. No, I, I hear you, man. I hear you. I just think it's really cool. Uh, first one in your family. Uh, I'm the, I'm the son, son of a logger myself. Uh, first one in my branch to get one. I just think that's really, it's always a really cool story when you hear like, I am the first one in my line to get a collegiate degree. Very cool. Um, okay. So you ended up getting on and winning the first season of CBS as tough as nails. Uh, were you either at UCM or were you at Lowe's when this happened? Yeah, I was here at UCM. I was the director of the military veterans center when it happened. So the way it happened. So we had, so I started Instagram when I retired just as a way to track my athletic stuff, um, just to kind of have fun with sponsorship and T-shirt companies. 
And then in January of 2019, I got a message from a guy by the name of Jonathan. Today, my name is Jonathan. I am a casting producer for the Discovery Channel. I like to talk to you about being on a TV show. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude. Like, you know, it's a scam, whatever. And he said, no, I'm like, I'm serious. Here's some information. Look me up. I'm legitimate. So I did. I looked him up. And we just said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take your phone call. So he called me. Uh, it was a Friday night. He talked to me about being on this television show. And um, I did some Zoom calls. And the, the show just never got off the ground for them. But I walked away thinking, man, that was a cool, you know, I've never been casted for a show before. So it was, it was neat. And then I didn't think anything of it. And then October of that year, October of 2019, yeah, um, Jonathan sent me a message and said, hey, CBS is doing this show called Tough as Nails that you, you need to apply. So he sent me like a link. Um, so I said, what the heck? Uh, I, I filled out the link. And then later that day, CBS, uh, a young man by the name of Gabriel, sent me a message say, can you do a Zoom call? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'll do another Zoom call. So I did a Zoom call with Gabriel from CBS Casting. And a few days later, he said, hey, CBS loved it. Can you do another Zoom call in a couple, in about a week or two? And I said, yeah, sure, not a problem. So I did this Zoom call. This time it was with Phil Kogan, the host of the show, um, his wife and two of the other co-producers and some other people in the room. And then Phil's like, hey, we scoped out your Instagram. Tell me about your deadlift. And then he, we just talked briefly about like my physical, why, why I would want to do the show. The phone call, the zoom call only lasted a couple of minutes and I walked away going, okay, wow, I guess, well, that was nice. Maybe I'll be considered, you know, it was a short call. And then a few weeks later, um, Jenny, the casting producer for CBS, um, contacted me and said, Hey Murph, we want to fly you to LA in December for the casting process. So I flew out to L.A., spent a week out in L.A. where you do different casting things like a physical and some other stuff, you know, to make sure that you're physically capable and mentally capable of of doing the show. And you do some on camera, like a little on camera interview. And then right after January of the new year of 2020, I got a phone call from Jenny and said, hey, Murph, we want you on the show. Can you come out in a couple of weeks? But I need you out here for 30 days. I'm like, wow, 30 days. I just started a new job like six months. I'd only been here for six months. Wow. So I talked to the president of the university, kind of briefly told him as much as I could, because, you know, you you can't really give out information about the show. But, and, you know, I was able to share with him enough. And he said, absolutely. Um, you know, go do go do what you need to do. So I made a UCM T-shirt because for the show, because I you, the people that have watched the show know that we have two different outfits that we wore. We wore Carhartt gear on the days we competed as a team. And then on the individual part of the episode, we wore really whatever you would wear to work. So I wear a lot of flannels, especially in the fall. And then underneath it, I had a UCM shirt on. So I went out there in January of um, 2020 and we filmed for, um, we filmed all 10 episodes within that 30 day period. Wow quick, quick turnaround. Um, it's funny that you said Instagram. I hear folks sometimes, uh, you know, that they go and hire agents for shows like this to find, and they do the research and, and, and this was completely for you. Instagram, the guy just reached out on Instagram. I think that's amazing. 
How, how do you think they found you? Because, you know, you, like you have a healthy following on Instagram, but it's not like your full-time gig or anything. How, how do you think they found you? Well, for the discovery channel, they were looking for like a physically fit veteran is what they told me. And then, um, and then I think the show, because, you know, the blue collar trades and we, the military is really blue collar. Yeah. We just joke around and say green collar. You know, you think about all the trades that are in the military, you have motor transport, you have refrigeration technicians, you have military police, you have firefighters, you know, mechanics, like welders. I mean, the military is one big blue collar force, really. Um, so they were, the show was looking, I think, for a veteran to be on the show. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, it, it was pretty amazing. You know, for season two, they had a retired Air Force, Air Force colonel on the show, um, Merrill. So the first black female to fly the U-2 spy plane. Oh, wow. Um, season, season three, um, I'm willing to bet there's probably a veteran on season three. Season three premieres October 6th. And we're actually casting right now for season four. We're actually looking for, for veteran applicants for season four for Tough as Nails, which will actually film fall of this year. Are you still involved with the show? You, you said we're still looking. Are you still, is there still a way, a way that you're still involved with the show? Uh, well, I, I help with, um, I put out information for casting. So when they're looking for um, cast, I just, you know, try to put that on my story or my, my Instagram or my Facebook story. Uh, reached out to different veteran groups and let them know that, hey, we're looking for a veteran. This is how you how you apply. Um, and then maybe in a few years, maybe on an All-Stars edition. Yeah. Um, you know, the show is very, getting very popular. We averaged, I think, four million viewers a night for season one. Um, the show was such a big success that CBS renewed a season three and season four at the same time, which I guess I'm still learning about television, but that's a big deal. They normally don't. Um, renew back-to-back seasons, but they did. So like I said, season four will actually film the fall of this year. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't, I didn't know, uh, again, I don't watch much TV, uh, in the traditional sense anymore. It's amazing that that was, that had the pull that it did. That's awesome to hear. Um, okay. So they wanted you. Okay. You went through the whole process. There's a a, sense they're like, okay, come on the show. What, what made you ultimately decide to say yes to them to do the show? Well, you know what, believe it or not, it, you know, I told you earlier that I had a hard time um, transitioning to the civilian life. And I think the, the appeal to me, because once I learned about the show, what the purpose was, that it was a competition, both mental and physical I wanted a chance to prove to myself that I could still bring it like I did when I was a first sergeant. So I wanted, I had a lot to prove to myself that I still could be competitive, that I could be productive, you know? So since retirement, I sat in an office and did HR work, you know, of course I worked out and stuff, but it's different being tested, you know, in, you know, the way that the military tests you physically and mentally. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could still do it. So that's why I really wanted to do the show. Um, I know in the interviews, they asked, you know, I said the most important thing to me was winning the title Tough as Nails because, you know, we, when we agreed to do the show, we didn't know since we were the first season, 
we didn't know until we taped episode one what the prizes were. We had no idea. Yeah. So I knew yeah. that I wanted to do the show because I wanted to prove to myself that I could still do it. Very good. Uh, on that show, did you find the challenge that you were looking for? I did. Um, you know, it, it was, this may sound a little corny to some people, but being on the show was almost like a healing for me because I had missed the Marine Corps so much that the show, like we, people ask, how can you get so tight so fast? Because we just had a season one reunion. My team just had a reunion in Vegas two weekends ago. We hadn't seen each other since we filmed last February and we still chat through Instagram or through messenger. Um, uh, still a chat going on all six of us like just met in Vegas and spent the weekend together had a great time with lifelong friends and it felt like the military because so we we go there you don't know anybody so in a short amount of time you have to get to know your team to accomplish a job in a short amount of time and that's what the military is sometimes you get transferred somewhere you have to get to know your personnel in a short amount of time to accomplish a mission. This time it was getting to know a group of people in a short amount of time to do a job, you know? So we had a lot of communication issues. You know, we struggled getting to know each other, but it felt like the military, you know, getting to know your guys, them getting to know you, you getting to know their weaknesses, them getting to know your weaknesses, getting to know each other's strengths, backing each other up to accomplish, you know, these jobs that we did on the show. So being on the show made me feel like I was in the Marine Corps again when it came to that, the teamwork aspect. So when I won the show, it was like an emotional release. Like I know I cried on TV multiple times, which I didn't think I would do, but Hey, when the emotions are running that high, like, and you do something that you set out to accomplish, man, it was very emotional. So, gotcha. but it was almost like it kind of brought me back to Murph Marine Corps days, you know, my joking with people, just being jovial, like that kind of went away when I retired, when I kind of was a recluse to myself, you know, as that HR manager. And, you know, the show kind of made me feel like my old self again. So it was really cool in in many ways. Very cathartic. Yes. Very good. Very good. Um, so there were individual and team tam- championships. Does that mean it was a show where, and I, I haven't seen the show. Uh, does it mean that there weren't any eliminations like a traditional reality show? It was almost like, Hey, you're still part of a team throughout the entire thing. Yep. So the way it works. So every episode normally starts off the first part episode is a team challenge. So the teams there's six on six on one team, six on the other three males, three females. So you'll do a team job together. And the team that wins that particular job will win $2,000 a piece. Then the second episode, part of the episode is the individual challenge. Now, if you get, and every week somebody gets eliminated from the individual. So that next episode, they will stay with their team and do the team comp, but they'll just sit out of the individual. Gotcha. So all 12 people that start the show will be there throughout the whole show. So it's very unique show in the fact that when you get eliminated, you still stay on and compete with your team. So I just said, so it really gives you a chance to get to know those people that whole time, but it also gives a chance for America or the audience to get to know those people 
instead of, okay, I have a favorite. Oh man, they're eliminated week two. Well, that's a bummer. Now I don't get to see them anymore. And now they get to stay on the show and you can still stay with your favorite person, even though they're not competing individual, you can still root them on the team aspect. That's really cool to hear. And really that is, that is a unique concept. I like to, I like to hear that. Um, for you, what was the funnest or best event in your opinion for you? Well, so if, so people that watch the show know that we, as a team, so my team was called Savage Crew and we won the first team challenge and then we lost like four in a row. Oh, no. um, we just, our communication was off. We were arguing with each other, but then but with each loss, we got to know each other a little bit more. We got to grow stronger a little bit more because you spend like 12 to 14 hours a day with everybody. Um, you know, you're in the van together, going to the job sites, you're talking about stuff. Um, so you really get to know them and you have a lot of time to talk about the losses and the wins. Well, we had a challenge where we started making our comeback. It's, we did a moving challenge. We had to move. So it was, like I said, the jobs are based upon real life jobs. So we were in a neighborhood in LA somewhere, north of LA. And they had rented like houses, like in a residential neighborhood. And now the garages were filled up with, you know, Hollywood furniture, meaning that, you know, each garage had the exact same amount of furniture. So the job was to move all the stuff from the garage and put them in these two moving trailers. And the first team to close the door on their trailer is the winner. And, you know, we had lost four in a row. And the, the week before that, we were close to winning. And it was a heartbreaking defeat. But we even learned more about each other. But on that moving challenge, when we closed the door and Phil declared us the winner, the, all the emotion that people see, us cheering and jumping around, shouting, is 100% real emotion. That is like six people coming together as a one team and celebrating our victory. That is by far my favorite episode is because that shows six people who truly give a damn about each other celebrating like our win. That, yeah. That's my favorite episode is just yeah. because, like I said, the military, that's like celebrating a victory or maybe bringing back everybody from overseas or, you know, accomplishing a training goal. You know, you did it together as a team. And that's what that celebration on TV was, was like a legitimate celebration because the show is real. There's no script. Phil just said, be yourselves and do this stuff the best you can. That was our guidance. So that's why I really, really like the show because there's nothing fake about the show. It's a hundred percent real. There's no script to read. There's no, they're going to game it for this person to win. It's, it's a real um, legitimate show. Very good. Very good. Now, um, are there more shows like this that you are interested in? And if you were, if you were to pick another show to go on to compete on, what would it be? I know you want to go on the all-star version when they have an all-star uh, version, but, but if there was another show, what would it be? You know, it's funny because I, I don't really watch much reality TV. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, to even be on a show, so to, to, to even be on a show is kind of ironic. Um, I think Forged and Fire is really cool, but I, I can't, I don't have any of those skills, but it just, I mean, that's a very cool show. I like watching that, but you know, I've only watched, I only watched one episode of Survivor and that's because when they started doing Tough as Nails commercials last year, that was the first commercial I got to see 
was during a survival survivor episode. So I watched survivor just so I could watch the commercials for tough as nails. Um, but other than that, I can't really think of any show that I'd want to be on. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Forge and fire, man. That's a good show. As far as when you we talk about craftsmanship and artistry, um, I think people don't, when they look at trades, they look at trades from a technical perspective, but when you look at forge and a show like forge and fire or, or that trade in general, or many trades, there's a level of art that people I think maybe have not appreciated in trades in a long time. Is that accurate? You think? What do you think? Oh, that's very accurate. And that's one thing, you know, and I, like I said, I work at the university of central Missouri and I advocate for education, but you know, there's sometimes where a standard college degree isn't right for everybody, you know? And so what I remind veterans about is, you know, you can use, your GI Bill for other things other than a traditional college, you know, the trades, for example, is a great way to use your education benefits and learn a skill. Um, so I, you know, I try to promote UCM as much as I can, but there are times where promoting an institution isn't in the best interest of the veteran. It's, you know, you have to really promote what's best for them, Yeah. let them make that decision. So I try to give them all, you know, when I talk to a veteran, I just talk to them about, What'd you do in the military? What would you like to do? What are your interests? And then we just try to match up the best um, institution for them, whether or not, like I said, that's a trade school, a technical school, you know, a, a traditional four-year college. So very good. Very good. Yeah. The trades, I think like my dad was a construction worker growing up, ended up spending his later days in a factory just, you know, cause physically couldn't do the construction anymore. Um, so Said my grandpa was an engineer on the railroads during World War II. You know, then after that he was a house painter. So everybody in my family is blue collar. So you know, I there's no shame in that. I mean, that's blue collar is what built America. Hundred percent. You need blue collar. You need those. You know, like as as uh, uh, what's his name would put it, those dirty jobs. You know, as Mike Rowe would put it. Um. So I saw in your. I saw on your Instagram that you're now modeling for area international. I saw it in your little bio there. Uh, how did, did that opportunity come through toughest after toughest nails? Uh, how'd that happen? And and what's, what's that experience been like? Oh, it's been pretty fun. We, um, so I, you know, I had a lot of people congratulate me after, after winning and, you know, it was awesome to connect. I had so many people connect with me after the show. I had like 1500 messages, <laughs> And like, it took me several weeks, but I answered everybody back. Even if it was just a thank you, I had Marines that I hadn't seen since like 1991, 92, wow. reach out to me. Hey Murph, congratulations. This is so-and-so from HMLA, whatever, or this unit. I'm like, man, I, I haven't heard from you in like 20 years. So it was awesome to reconnect with so many people. But it's a lot of the people that reached out. So Tony from... Area, she's like the marketing um, boss, and she was a huge fan of the show. And she said, "Hey, would you be interested in trying your hand at modeling?" And I'm like, "Like, like, what kind of modeling? We talk like runway modeling or modeling?" She's like, <laughs> "She's like, no." She's like, "I just, um, you know, for our workwear stuff, you know, because Ariette does, you know, they're huge in the rodeo scene, but they also do workwear, you know, work boots, work pants, um, work shirts." Um, you give it a, well, you want to give it a shot. I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. 
<laughs> so um, earlier this year, um, they flew me out to to Union City, California, to their headquarters, and I spent eight hours putting on pants, shirts, boots, standing in front of the camera, um, you know, sashaying, if you will, side to side, different poses, like. You know, it was it was more way more fun than I thought it would be because I think if you have a sense of humor, I think that helps because you can kind of laugh at yourself. Because being a Marine, one of the last things I ever thought would be add model to that resume. But sure enough, they 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 liked having me out there and um I'm officially now one of their workwear models. So they asked me if I'd be interested in staying on. So now I go out every couple of months for, for a couple of day photo shoots. So I'll be in their, their e-commerce catalog and like paper catalogs and things of that nature. So there you go. I, it's there just you. a fun, fun. It's, it's just fun. And you know, I'm at the point in my life where I just want to do fun stuff now. So it's Heck nothing yeah. I thought I would ever do, but I'm glad I took, I'm glad I took the opportunity to do so. Very cool. Very cool. Um, okay. Murph, uh, is there a veteran nonprofit or a veteran or another veteran in the veteran community whom you've had an experience with or whom you've worked with that you'd like to mention? Yeah, I would say his name is Brian Shantosh. You may, you may know him. Um, so Brian is a, a Navy cross recipient for his actions in Fallujah. Um, he's a retired Marine major. He runs what's called the big fish foundation. So it's a group that helps veterans. Um, I mean, he does a lot of behind the scenes stuff to help the veteran community. But if anybody's looking to get involved with the veteran community, um, I would say he's a great organization. And I just did a podcast recently as well with the Travis Mannion Foundation. Mm. Um, Ryan Mannion, you know, started that foundation in honor of her brother. Oh, yeah. Um, those would be like my top two organizations that, that I think are just great veterans organizations. Um, they do so much. They do a lot of outreach. You know, they help veterans in, in ways that, you know, the normal group can't. So it's a great group of people. Very good. Very good. Um, Murph, what's, uh, what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today? Uh, I would say never, never pass up an opportunity. Like, so for example, when I was overseas, um, I know this, so we were in Qatar and this ship, we were on, we were in Qatar. We were up next to a, a port or a pier and this other, the, one of the biggest ships I've ever seen in my life is parked next to our, our ship. And, you know, it's a big cargo container ship. And, you know, I walked past it and I'm like, I'm with my company commander and we walked past. I'm like, maybe they'll let us on. I want to take a look. So. We, we just asked, could we go aboard and take a look? And they're like, absolutely. So they let us on. Inside the ship, it looks like a parking garage. I mean, mm -hmm. there are like, like big tractors, excavators sitting here. And right on the other side are like Lamborghinis. And like it was a, the biggest, almost, it was the biggest parking garage you've ever seen. But it, it has such a mix of equipment. So... Just stuff like that or going to a place you've never got to go to because, you know, you had the opportunity and you didn't pass it up. So it's the same thing. I had the opportunity not to apply for Tough as Nails. And yeah. but, you know, if I wouldn't have took up the opportunity when that show came on TV, would I have noticed it? Who knows? But if I did, I've been like, man, 
you just wasted that opportunity. So I would rather fail at something and at least know that I gave it a shot than to spend the rest of my life wondering, could I have done that? Or how well would I have done that? If I fell at it or if I'm not good at it, hey, at least I know. But if I never take a, that opportunity, then I'm going to second guess my decision or I'm going to think about that the rest of my life of what could have been. 100%. 100%. Okay. Um, you know, Murph, this, is, this has been great. Um, is there anything that I've missed or haven't asked? Or if you have a parting shot that you'd like to tell anybody that's listening to this uh, that you'd like to share? I can't think of anything. That's usually what I end with is, you know, never pass up an opportunity. Because like I said, the modeling thing, I just did it because I didn't want to pass up an opportunity. Because what happens if I passed it up and I would never know what it was like to stand there and change clothes all day. And like all the stuff that happens behind the scenes of modeling, you know, you have so many people involved in like taking pictures and then you, you have all the other people that are involved and so anything small or big, no matter what the opportunity is, that's what I try to lead people with is, man, just do it because you never know what can come of it. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank Murph for coming on our Marine Corps birthday edition of Born the Battle. To find more information on Murph, you know, just type in Murph Tough as Nails in your Google machine and you'll find all kinds of information and places to look them up on. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of Their Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by sending in a short write-up and about five photos to newmedia at va.gov. And if you are a Marine, you're going to know this one. Gregory Pappy Boynton was born in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in December of 1912, and he had a familial connection with the Brule Sioux Tribe. During his childhood, he took his first flight with Clyde Pangborn, who later became the first pilot to fly over the Pacific Ocean nonstop. Boynton was a wrestler at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, Washington, until he graduated in 1930. In 1934, he graduated from the University of Washington, where he received a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering. During his time in college, he was a member of the Army Reserve Officer Training Corps and became a cadet captain. Upon graduating, he worked for Boeing as a draftsman and an engineer. He commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army Coast Guard Artillery Reserve in June of 1934. During this time, he served two months of active duty with the 630th Coast Artillery at Fort Warden, Washington. He joined the Marine Corps Reserve on June 13, 1935, and later joined active duty in 1937. In January of 1939, he transferred to the 2nd Marine Aircraft Group at San Diego Naval Air Station. In April of 1942, Boynton resigned from his commission in the Marine Corps after accepting an offer to join the American Volunteer Group, better known as the Flying Tigers. He later returned to the Marine Corps as a major. September of 1943, he served as commanding officer of Marine Fighter Squadron 214, the Black Sheep Squadron. 
Boynton was 31 at the time and older than all the other pilots. His peers called him Gramps and Pappy. Boynton scored 26 victories against the Japanese until they shot him down over the Pacific and captured him. For the next 20 months, Boynton was a prisoner of war. At the end of the war, forces liberated him from a prison camp. He returned to the U.S. as a lieutenant colonel. And in March of 1944, he received a Medal of Honor from President Harry Truman. This was the citation. For extraordinary heroism above and beyond the call of duty as commanding officer of Marine Fighting Squadron 214, an action against enemy Japanese forces in Central Solomon's area from September of 1943 to January 3rd of 1944. Consistently outnumbered throughout successive hazardous flights over heavily defended hostile territory, Major Boynton struck at the enemy with daring and courageous persistence, leading his squadron into combat with devastating results to Japanese shipping, shore installations, and aerial forces. Resolute in his efforts to inflict crippling damage on the enemy, Major Boynton led a formation of 24 fighters over Kalili on October 17, and persistently circling the aerodrome where 60 hostile aircraft were grounded, boldly challenging the Japanese to send up planes. He was given out a direct challenge to, give me your best. So the legend goes, he was given out a direct challenge. It's like uh, Achilles, if you ever seen, uh, if you ever seen the movie Troy, you know, is there no one else? It's kind of the same deal, but with planes. Under his brilliant command, our fighters shot down 20 enemy craft in the ensuing action without the loss of a single ship. A superb airman and determined fighter against overwhelming odds, Major Boynton personally destroyed 26 of the many Japanese planes shot down by a squadron, and by his forceful leadership, developed the combat readiness in his command, which was a distinctive factor in the Allied aerial achievement in this vitally strategic area. Boynton also later received a Navy Cross and a Purple Heart. Unfortunately, Boynton died of cancer on January 11th of 1988 in Fresno, California. His fourth wife, Josephine, two adult children, and eight grandchildren all survived him. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery and received full military honors. Marine Corps veteran Gregory Pappy Boynton. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to me at podcast at va.gov include a short write-up and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the born the battle veteran of the week and if you like this podcast episode hit the subscribe button we're on itunes spotify google podcast iHeartRadio, pretty much any pod catching app on a phone computer tablet or man for more stories on veterans and veteran benefits check out our website blogs.va.gov and follow the va on social media facebook instagram twitter youtube rally point linkedin dept vet affairs u.s department of veterans affairs no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song. It was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in three weeks for the last episode of the year. Until then, we have some good rewinds coming up for you. Make sure you check them out and take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we're down another campaign. My
So many shenanigans happen sometimes when you're a young Marine, like there's just too many to count. Uh, so I know that one time um, I was on a uh, public transport in Australia and um, I, I guess maybe I had too much of the local brew and I fell asleep. Um, <laughs> I woke up several hours later, nowhere near where I needed to be, no clue where, how I was getting back. Um, I just remember waking up in a park. And so I'm assuming that some friendly people escorted me off the bus and, you know, just put me under a tree. But I woke up not knowing how I got there um, or how I was going to get back. So it was quite the adventure getting back on time so you didn't get in trouble. Um, how did you get back? I, I mean, um, hitchhiking. <laughs> hitchhiking. <laughs> But people in Australia are really friendly, though. They it only took a couple cars, and then before I know it, they picked me up and you know gave me a ride back to to we were the ship was ported in Perth, so we uh, they took me back to Perth and um, they took care of me. You know they even fed me lunch on the way back. So it was a very friendly uh, group of people that gave me. It's an Australian rugby team, like picked me up. So I get to hang out with them for a little while. 